And so I think going for therapy has really taught me to learn to celebrate the little wins. And when I am able to celebrate the little wins, that's when I realize that there can be many more wins. And knowing that I can have a win today pushes me to wake up tomorrow and try again and hopefully get another win. Hi, this is Janice. And I'm Sarah N. And we're your hosts for Explore This, a podcast for the modern day working professional. Each week, we explore actionable insights on how you can thrive personally and professionally. Our guest today is the wonderful Heidi Kwa. If you didn't know who Heidi is, she is a Malaysian social rights advocate and is the founding director of Refuge for the Refugees, a non-profit organization that seeks to raise awareness on the plight of refugees and provide holistic education for refugee children. This led her to receive the Queen's Young Leaders Award bestowed by Queen Elizabeth herself. She also recently added professor to her job title as the adjunct associate professor at Taylor's Lakeside University. We're so excited to have you here with us on the podcast, Heidi, especially to discuss a very, I would say, challenging topic, something that at the moment is still kind of hardly spoken about or sometimes it's a difficult conversation to get into on the topic of mental health. So it's very timely, we feel as well, given that with the whole pandemic being stretched out, the movement control order in Malaysia being extended, it's something that we're all feeling the brunt of. So we're excited to jump into this conversation with you. Thank you for having me. So before we sort of jump into that, we wanted to maybe take two steps back, right, and rewind the clock to when you were at the tender young age of 18 and founded your nonprofit Refuge for the Refugee. We're excited to hear how that journey was like for you. What even motivated you to venture into this whole world of social justice activism? Yeah, no, I'm actually really excited to be speaking about mental health today. I feel that, you know, it needs to be spoken about more in a more candid manner. I think people need to know that everyone is at risk in some ways to struggle with their mental health in one way or another, especially in the midst of a pandemic. So yeah, I, I think for me, you know, working with the refugee community started from a place of just trying to understand my privilege. I was in a secondary school, it's in SKMK Damansara Jaya, and I was surrounded by really good friends. I mean, friends that were, you know, were amazing. They were public speakers and debaters, cheerleaders, people who represented their school in one way or another. And every day, because they were debaters and public speakers, every day after school, we gather in the school canteen with our nasi lemak and terap bandung ice and talk about what the government is not doing enough and what NGOs are not doing enough. What You know, it's always pointing fingers and being angry at the public for not doing enough. And I think one day it finally sunk in. How can I be so angry about injustice when I'm not doing anything about it? How can I be pointing fingers about people not doing enough when I am not doing enough as well? So I think my journey really started from there. After secondary school, I had a couple of months before I started college when I decided that, hey, I wanted to do, you know, I wanted to spend time working with the refugee community. I wanted to see how I could meet the needs around me rather than just sit around and sulk. And so I think, you know, it started from there. I asked around and I found out about a refugee school in the heart of KL that needed English teachers. And I went in, started teaching, only to realize that it was such a complex issue. It wasn't just kids not having access to education, but it was also kids that did not have access to basic healthcare. Parents didn't have access to job opportunities. And it really broke my heart that something I didn't need to fight for myself, which is education, was something that these kids need to fight so hard for. So what could I do with my education or my privilege in that sense to ensure that these kids have access to education as well? It's incredible that you identified that need and then sort of revolve your life around 
that mission, your life's cause was dedicated to bettering the lives of these people that you have resolved to do something to help. And it's very obvious to us today that the nature of your work truly covers a very wide spectrum. You provide food aid on a weekly basis, the amount of people that you mobilize, packing the food. You also focus on education for refugees and even human trafficking cases. Out of this whole wide spectrum of the work that you are doing right now, could you share with us a defining moment that has really left a very huge mark and has had a very massive impact on you? Yeah, I think for me, it was really when I started Refugee Refugees. So four months into volunteering, right before I started college, when I was about to start, I walked into the headmaster's office and I told him that like, hey, I would be, I mean, I'm done volunteering. You know, I need to focus on college is what my parents told me to do. And then he told me, you know what, hey, that's perfectly fine because the school's about to be shut due to lack of funds. And I think at that point of time, it just really shocked me. How could these kids... Um, lose their only access to education. I mean, I couldn't understand it, right? Growing up in PJ and Kel, I mean, I hate to say this, but I always knew that I'll go to college one day. Which college is another conversation altogether, right? But I always knew that it was in the books for me, right? So when these kids were losing their only access to education, I felt that I needed to do something about it. I needed to find a way to use my privilege, to use my voice, to use my influence, to use my education, to see how we could first shine a light on the plight of refugees in Malaysia to get people to understand that, hey, refugees exist. And this is why refugees exist. But secondly, how do we rally people to find ways to support the refugee community? How do we use our education for good? So we started Refugee Refugees as a project. I remember, you know, even before we started Refugee Refugees, we were Googling and trying to find existing organizations at a point of time that were supporting refugees or working with refugees. And there was just so few organizations available. Ten years ago, it probably was just UNICR and many other much smaller organizations that were just doing their own thing. So in order to meet the need, we started Refugee Refugees as a project. We started, and through just running as a project and trying to raise awareness, we realized that the needs were just far greater. We were just in one refugee school and there were 180 other refugee schools. And if this one refugee school was struggling, right, many other schools would be struggling as well. So how do we ensure that we keep these schools afloat and keep ensuring these kids have access to formal quality education? Yeah, I'm really curious, Heidi, because you speak about the fact that we all come from, I would say, middle, upper class society and communities. And it's true, right? I reflect on our education post high school and it's the question of which school, you're, which university you're going to go to, what are you going to study? It's never a thought of if I'm even going to go to high to university, it was sort of a given. In fact, now I think about it, there are some conversations which I've personally been involved with, with these people we refer now as millennials. And I've heard of parents literally begging their children to say, please go to school because for them, it's like, I'm thinking it's not really important. You know, most people don't end up working as what they study so what's the point but on the flip side there are these communities that people are actually fighting and wanting access to education so at that young age of 18 what made you someone that was so reflective so self-aware I think the only reason why I could be so reflective was because I had that first-hand experience of working with the refugee community and just seeing the difference between me and them it's crazy because in hindsight, even though I went in as a teacher, my best friend always says that I was a fake teacher. I ended up playing with the kids more than really educating them. <laughs> um, but even though I went in as a teacher, I was just realistically just a couple of years older than them. But yet we lacked such different lives. 
And then, you know, it really boggled me because what I have today is not something that I had to fight for, access to education, access to a voice, the privilege that I have. But these kids, you know, they were just born in a country not too far away. Yet they had to go through so much and give up so much just to be here in Malaysia to fight for access to education, to fight for a survival, only to be resettled to another country a few years down the road. And when you, a lot of times when people think about resettlement, they think that like, hey, refugees are so lucky, they get to go and stay in the US, for example. But the truth is, they just want to go home and they cannot go home because it's dangerous back home. So I think for me, being planted and working right smack in, with the community and listening to your stories and, and being so close to them got me to truly understand, to see the disparity between us and them and to see how can I use my circle of influence in that sense to meet the needs out there. Yeah, so this mission that you're driving and the causes that you're championing within this refugees community is very meaningful. And it's evident we see how the work that you're doing is translating into practical steps in which they are actually benefiting from food aid and everything like that. But we want to have a conversation, a deeper conversation around how this has taken a toll on your mental health, if at all. Yeah, definitely. I think being on the first line of defense has always been really, really difficult, especially when you are a big feeler. I'm a big feeler, so I feel everything, you know, in extreme intensity. I feel like the same levels of joy is the same levels of like extreme sadness. So being on the first line of defense has really been difficult. I think a lot of times we work with people who are really suffering and struggling. And a lot of times they come to you hoping for a solution when you feel equally as helpless as well. I think for me, I started experiencing my most severe burnout about four years ago. I remember being in the midst of my highest wins and successes. I was being the queen. I was traveling to a different country every single month. I spent more time on planes than at home. I would go to countries to consult with international bodies on um, refugee policies. And that was a dream. 23, 24, being able to do that. But yet, I remember in between all my high moments, was also a huge crash. I would sit on a plane and just have massive anxiety attacks. I would sit in a car on the way in between speaking engagements or big meetings and have complete meltdowns. And I couldn't comprehend what was happening at a point of time. I punished myself further for feeling such terrible emotions because I felt that I was ungrateful and that I wasn't appreciating my privileges in that sense. So I think it's been quite a journey that was when my burnout happened. And how do I even explain this? I think I've always functioned as a person where from a very young age, whenever I experience grief or extreme hurt or just something major happening, I would always give myself a timeline to recover and to bounce back just so that I could hustle and move on to the next thing. And so it's always like, okay, I tell myself, I'll cry for three days, I'll cry for five days and I'll be okay after. And all this worked for many years. I could bury my emotions and get back into building my organization, building the work that we do. Until one day it stopped working. One day, three days turned into three weeks, turned into three months, and I was still feeling the same level of anxiety and the same level of depression. And I couldn't comprehend why. And I think that's when I realized that I really needed help. So in terms of having that realization that the burnout was happening and that you were feeling these unexplainable emotions of being at the highest of highs, but at the same time, you're feeling so internally burnt out, you're feeling these crashes and having to come up with these timelines to help you recover it. What 
would you say is the way that you have learned to internally process all of these intense emotional labels that comes with what you do now? Yeah, so about two years ago, after experiencing really bad burnout for about a year plus, I decided to seek professional mental health support. So I went around looking for a therapist that could help me. And it was a process. I would tell people that finding a therapist or clinical psychologist that can help you is like finding the right life partner. You need good chemistry. You need to be able to um, respect one another and have the same views. And so for me, I remember going through just quite a number of people that didn't quite sit well with me. I mean, I was putting in the work, going for sessions up to two times a week, hoping that I would get better and I wasn't getting there. And I was just, you know, angry and frustrated with myself until thankfully a slot opened up for me to see my current um, clinical psychologist. And ever since then, he's been really, really helpful. Yeah, but for me, I think when I realized that I was crashing and I was in a really bad place, not only was I severely burnt out, you know, I was at my highs, but yet really struggled with suicidal thoughts I had a couple of attempts and that's when I realized that if I don't get myself out of this I cannot fully support and serve the communities that I was serving so yeah two years in and um, still going for therapy weekly and it has really changed me as a person in helping me understand myself in helping me cope with the work that I do and I think I've grown so much since so I'm really thankful yeah thank you so much for being so vulnerable about speaking up with therapy because in the society that we live in nowadays, it still comes with a lot of stigma. I think talking about therapy, especially in an Asian society context. So I really applaud you and I thank you so much for sharing your vulnerability because I believe that that our listeners out there, even if they are not involved in refugee work or activism work, a lot of them could probably relate to that because some of them might feel, oh, my problems aren't big enough to actually seek therapy. It's a minor thing that I could probably sort out myself. I don't know if you have anything to say to people who might have these kind of thoughts. I mean, what I always tell my friends, number one, is to not wait until you are at your wit's end. It gets really dangerous when you're there and it's a lot more work getting out of that rut. Number two, stop gaslighting yourself. Stop dismissing your feelings and your emotions. Be your own advocate. And if you're feeling really low and you're really struggling, you don't need to justify your struggles. A lot of times people think about your current situations and go like, oh, I'm sure someone has it much worse than me. So I probably don't need help. I just need to suck it up. And, and that's what you know, a lot of my friends tell me. Whenever I go like, hey, I realize that you've been a bit more anxious lately. Or like, hey, are you doing okay? Do you think it's time? Do you want to explore seeking help? Not in a way where it's insulting, but more so I'm a huge believer for it, right? I, I go for therapy myself. I think people need to stop gaslighting themselves and, and learn to recognize warning signs in your body to seek help. Don't wait until it's too late. Um, a lot of times we'll wait until it's too late. And when you are in the deepest pit of your struggle, that's when getting out is a lot tougher. Mm-hmm. And seeking help is not only for those who are severely depressed. You can go for counseling or therapy if you are in between jobs, for example. I feel that we experience so much more grief than we actually know. A lot of times people think of grief and they think of like death and losses, but grief can also happen in friendships ending or relationships ending or losing a job. Grief happens in so many areas of our lives that we need to learn to recognize it and give our 
ourselves permission to sit with our emotions just so that we can fully grieve and yeah mm. and grief doesn't have a scale i think that's what i've um, learned as well it's not your grief is bigger than mine therefore you are allowed and you should be the one that seeks therapy rather than me there's no scale that says whose grief is larger or another grief is grief right and you have to process it yeah most definitely what would you say has been your biggest learning having gone through your um therapy journey and what are some of the techniques or learnings that you have started practicing in your day-to-day life? I think I've definitely learned to stop trying to be a perfectionist. <laughs> um, and I think I've learned that being a perfectionist is pretty overrated and no one really is perfect in that sense. Honestly, for the longest... Okay, this might sound really dumb, but I think for the longest time, I've always felt that if I cracked the code and did something right, I would be able to change the world. I'm not kidding. Like now when I think about it, I just cringe this time right up till maybe even like late last year and and i really think that until today i probably have like instances of those moments where i feel so angry at myself for not being smart enough or articulate enough or or compelling enough because i felt that if i was enough in all these areas i would be able to change the world or at least change malaysia or i don't know do something that is massive you know and so i think with that i've always kind of strived for for perfectionism, to be perfect in all that I do. Only to realize that your, your goalposts, when you try to perfect, your goalposts keeps shifting, right? The wins are just never enough because once you experience a big win, it's really what can I achieve after. And the bigger the achievements are, the harder it, it's, it is to top it. So I think, you know, at therapy, I've really learned that perfectionism is overrated. I've also really learned to be kinder to myself and to stop dismissing my own emotions. And I think in learning to be kind to myself, it's really taught me to be kinder to the people around me as well. Because every time I dismiss my emotions, I end up unknowingly dismissing someone else's emotions. So I think that has been a huge learning point for me. All right, Heidi. So let's segue a little bit into talking about managing expectations. Earlier in the podcast conversation, you we, we identify you as a young female founder and you are at a very interesting position of being at this frontliner stage, being at the forefront of this whole refugee social activism work and sometimes having to maybe even put up a front and there's this perception that people might have of you that you have it all you need to be strong there is that thrive and hustle sort of attitude you need to hold the fort all maybe at the expense of your mental health is this something that you resonate with yeah most definitely i think for the longest time i felt that i needed to have it together this is why the timelines came in place you know i could only grieve for three days or two days when something major happens before I had to bounce back and be okay again. I always felt that there was the pressure of putting up the perfect front, showing people that I have it under control because if I can't convince myself, how can I convince others that I know what I'm doing to to, to come on a journey with me? I think so for many years, it was striving to put up the perfect front. I think what changed to me was this conversation with one of my closest friends. Her name is Samantha. She's a mother of three. And one day at a cafe, we were hanging out and she was like, Heidi, I know you, but I don't know, know you. Mm. And, and the crazy thing is, we were in the same church, we were in the same cell group. We spent so much time together. We are going on coffee dates and hangouts. And she was like, yeah, Heidi, I know you, but I don't know, know you. I know of your achievements. I know of all your wins, but I still don't feel like I know you. And I remember just looking at her and 
I broke down completely after because I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, don't get me wrong. Like, I just want to know you as a person, not just as Heidi Kwa that we read in the newspaper. And that's when I realized that even with my close circle of friends, I was projecting a front. I had it all together. I knew what I was doing. I would only share the wins and my highs and not really allow people in into that space of my struggles and my pain and my hurts. Yeah. Why do you think it's so... I think a lot of it, honestly, it's social media and how we look at successful people and they always talk about their wins and their highs. And Instagram and Facebook is really just our highlight reels a lot of times. We post filtered photos or photos of ourselves. We post our highest wins. But I mean, when you're washing the toilet, you got the picture of you washing the toilet, man. Or when your mother's scolding you, do you take a picture and go like, hey, look, my mother's scolding me. You don't, right? And these moments that are real, we don't showcase in that sense and so when you look at someone's social media profile from a distance that's when you get a glimpse that everything's fine and dandy and you make yourself question like okay if that person has it all together why can't i have it all together so i think it's a lot of that and i think instagram went through a whole phase of people talking about needing to be productive like Mm. companies coming up with like productivity planners and checkers you know just needing to hustle and every time you read like boss big quotes it's always about hustling and and productivity right and so when you rest then you feel guilty about it and you feel that like you cannot be resting when everyone's working so hard i think that that was like that for me for many years i felt that i couldn't rest because everyone's working so hard but i don't know i realized that people wasn't showcasing their rest on social media (laughs) so i'm wondering because we've been friends for a while now and i follow your journey on on social media and what struck me is that you're super real about how you feel you talk about not only your highs of course you sometimes showcase some of the wins and everything but you also talk about For example, how broken you feel when you receive a call from a refugee and you kind of detail the journey and you allow your friends and your different followers to journey along the highs and the lowest of lows with you. So I'm wondering, how do you go from someone who actually was putting up that I have it together sort of front to now being like, okay, I'm going to be real. I'm going to let people know what I'm actually going through. What caused the change? I think a big reason was the conversation I had with my friend Sam, right? It says, you know, I know you, but I don't know, know you. And... And I think it was also realizing that when I was only showcasing my highs, I created a lot of distance between me and everyone else because people felt that I was on a streak, I was winning, you know, I was achieving. And people felt that in order to make a difference, I needed to have it all in control. I needed to know what to do. I think I realized that I subconsciously was portraying a lot of that, telling people that I know what I'm doing. And the more I portrayed that, the more people were hesitant to step up to the plate and to volunteer or to get involved with communities because they felt that they needed to know it all before they could make a difference. But when I started being vulnerable, when I started being real, that's when we saw just many ordinary people, you know, step up and go like, hey, I want to get involved as well because they felt that they resonated a little bit more with me, that I was more relatable. And I think that was just really encouraging. Being able to relate to people a lot more also helped me feel less lonely. Yeah, so if it helps me feel less lonely, I believe that being someone who experienced so many highs in that sense, but being real would allow people to feel less lonely as well. So you talk about a lot of these external expectations that people might have of you, right? People within uh, and whether that means your friends, your close friends, or even just in general, 
social media followers. But what about your internal expectations of sometimes feeling that there are so many people that need help, but yeah. maybe you, due to you know lack of resources and con- certain constraints, that your hands are also tight. So how how do you manage that? It's hard. It's a process. It is a process. I think we really are our harshest critique in that sense, and so we always feel that we're not enough. And I don't even know how to say this right because, you know, when I tell my friends this, they go like, "Hadia, you stupid! Like, look at what you're achieving, right?" But if I get to be real, a lot of days I still feel that what I'm doing is not enough. And even at a point of time where we're feeding one thousand families a week. It was pretty crazy, but I felt that I wasn't doing enough because I wasn't feeding ten thousand families or hundred thousand families. It was just one thousand families that were feeding. So I think for me, what has truly helped me manage that was going for therapy and seeking help, learning how to stop punishing myself. Because a lot of times, I don't know about you, but I think I grew up a lot thinking that the more I punished and critiqued myself, the better I will become because, you know, you have to kind of keep it humble, right? So <laughs> if you think at least yourself that you're stupid, then you will strive hard to become smart. <laughs> I mean, that, at least that was what I had in mind. I thought that was the effective way of doing it. And yes, you know, doing that helps for a while because it kind of pushes you and motivates you to achieve more. But in the long run, you'll just get really burnt out and really tired when you place that expectation on yourself. And so I think going for therapy has really taught me to learn to celebrate the little wins. And when I am able to celebrate the little wins, that's when I realize that there can be many more wins. And knowing that I can have a win today pushes me to wake up tomorrow and try again and hopefully get another win. This whole mental health journey is absolutely a journey. Maybe you can also touch a little bit more about the role of family. I assume that, like you mentioned, you come from a family that, that's very supportive of the things that you do. Can you maybe break it down to us in terms of what that support from family looked like? But yeah. also more importantly, when we talk about this whole idea of going for therapy and knowing that therapy is still sort of this stigmatized and taboo topic, what was their reaction like when you told them about it? I mean, let's first talk about their reaction. I think my family is a very typical Asian family that doesn't really talk about stuff like that. So I think like the only time we talked about it was when my parents had to come to the hospital when I attempted suicide. But ever since then, we have not spoken about it. I do see, you know, them finding ways to be kinder and more gentle on me in that sense to, to kind of place less expectation on me because they know that I place a lot of expectations on myself and I think that has been really really helpful I think it's not just family support that is you know crucial I think it's support of you know finding yourself a close circle of friends that you can be real and vulnerable with right I think that has been such a big part of my journey being able to find that close circle of friends that when I'm with them the same way as when I'm with family I I don't need to be the Heidi Kwa that everyone knows I can just be the Heidi Kwa who's a 26 year old girl that is a barista I loved you know being behind a coffee machine right pretending that I know myself when I don't it's so funny because every time people line up for coffee they go like oh you want I want a cappuccino I want a flat white I want a latte and I would write all those down but I only make two versions of coffee. It's either white or black. <laughs> and, <laughs> whether it's a flat white or a cappuccino, it's up to your imagination. <laughs> I guess like with friends like, you know, Janice or just everyone else, I think being able to let down my guard and just be Heidi Kwa, that 26, 27 year old girl uh, that loves everything sparkly and loud and pretty. I think that has just been really, really helpful finding a community that you can be real with. 
And on that note, right, as a community of friends supporting people, maybe going through therapy or who are going through mental health struggles, how can we start to normalize these conversations? I think that's a really good question. I think we can first start by normalizing these conversations by just talking about it. A lot of times for people who are seeking help, they feel that they cannot tell their friends that they're going for therapy because their friends might think that they are crazy or problematic or their friends will start walking around like on eggshells around them. I think we need to start talking about it. But for friends who know about friends who are struggling, what really helped me was my friends not treating me differently. So they don't treat me like I'm fragile or broken. They, they treat me just the same. They still crack jokes around me. They still pull my leg. They're still, you know, semi-mean to me. They don't treat me differently. And I think that was a really, very much a healing process, right? Knowing that I can still show up and be me. I think in the beginning, beginning weeks of my therapy or beginning months, you know, I had friends who the best thing they knew how to do was to just fetch me to therapy and that make a huge difference. Or or invite me over after therapy, you know, to just sit with me or process my emotions to whatever extent that I felt comfortable to. I mean, you know, Jen, Mike and Viola, mm. I think so often after therapy, I go to your house and Mike makes me chicken soup. And that just makes a huge difference because he can do something really kind and sweet like make me chicken soup, but we don't need to dive into my emotions. We just hold space and we can talk about anything and everything. And that has made a huge difference. Yeah, a lot of times I think people come to me, now that I've been more open about my journey with mental health, People come to me and go like, hey, how do I support my friends through this? The only thing I can say is to be present. To be present and to not treat them differently. And to encourage them to seek help because it makes such a big difference. And to hold space, right? I think that's yeah. a big mention as well. Yeah. Yeah, honestly, we can all benefit from having kindness for others, for ourselves, and for holding space for each and every yeah. one of our friends. Yeah, I think that is key and so important. So on that note, as we're coming towards the end of our conversation, we want to ask you as well, Heidi, what are you most excited about right now and what brings you hope? I am most excited about seeing how I can bring people together to do good. I think that energizes me and that reminds me that there is hope in this world, right? That we don't need to suffer alone and we don't need to journey alone as well. I think what excites me is also learning to shop every day and to be authentic in showing up. And that excites me because I feel that it's enough of us putting up a front, appearing polished and put together. You know, every time I meet someone that's authentic and vulnerable, I find it actually refreshing, right? That we are not hiding behind our wins and our successes and our mask. Because the more that we learn to show up authentic and vulnerable, the more we realize that we're actually a lot more similar than we would like to think. I tell people that my struggle with, you know, the wins and the magazine appearances and awards is that it always flashes just the perfect part of me in that sense when I'm so much more than that and so I a lot of times when I read about the wins of other people I feel that I cannot relate because it's just a high moments right but if the person shows up and go like you know what 15 years in and I still don't know what I'm doing I'll go like hey I get you right because 10 years in I would expect myself to know it all but the truth is I don't I don't know it all right and I wake up every morning and try to figure it out anyway when I was a kid I look at adults and I go like I want to be an adult one day I'm like what was I thinking <laughs> it's like and I think one of the things that brings people together now more than ever especially during this time is really just the authenticity and the vulnerability that we bring when we 
face these conversations with those that are closest and dearest to us. And even those that are not so close, they might just be social media followers. But by you, Heidi, embracing this authenticity and this vulnerability, by being very honest about the, the challenges, the heartbreaks, the heartaches that you go through and sharing this across your social media platforms, it lets people see that you're just a human after all. You're not just the founder, the director of Refuge for the Refugees, but you're so much more beyond that. And I think in learning to manage the expectation, in being real, it helps people manage the expectation as well. And that just kind of helps me manage the expectation for myself, just so that people don't expect so much of me. All right. So this is one final question that we like to ask all our guests at the end of every episode. And this question is, what's the one thing you recently explored that surprised you? A couple of months ago, I read this quote somewhere. Be somebody who makes everybody feel like a somebody. And I thought, whoa, how cool is that, right? If I approach life and everyone around me in such a way to show up and to be somebody who makes everybody feel like a somebody. And I think going around with that value has just been powerful because I think it has made me realize that when you meet someone as an equal and you treat them, I mean, the same way that you would greet your guards would be how a a CEO of a company. I think it's so dignifying for the person. I think that has really changed me in just how I approach the people around me and, and be aware of how my actions can truly make a difference. The same amount of effort I put in into saying, hi, you know, if I put in just a bit more effort into greeting someone or just being kind would can and will make someone stay. And it's not just about making someone stay. I feel that the world is such a harsh place to be in these days that we just need to be kind to people and to be somebody who makes everybody feel like a somebody. I love that. Thank you for for just kind of ending the interview with just that very profound quote. Uh, and it's a, it's a very humbling reminder for all of us. So I think that's all the time that we have today, Heidi. We're so glad that you found the space and the time to share with us. I think more importantly, to be authentic and vulnerable with our listeners. Thank you so much, Heidi. Thanks for Bye. having me. If you've stuck around to the end of this episode, we want to say thank you for exploring with us. And if you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and most importantly, share this episode with your friends. We'd love to hear from you. So you can also connect with us on Instagram using the Instagram handle Explore This Podcast. A-C-T-S-P-L-O-R-E This Podcast. New episodes for Explore This drops every Monday at 8pm. See you then!